Lowdown Chronicles. Meet your maker. Hello Podcast Freaks, welcome to the new episode of Lowdown Magazine's very own program, The Lowdown Chronicles, Meet Your Maker, um, a new series that puts the well-deserved spotlight on people that essentially help to shape this ever-evolving uh, pop cultural universe as we know it. Um, in true Lowdown fashion, the illustrious circle of international guests, they won't be put together from one specific spectrum only, but it is assembled from the many tesseras the bigger picture is manufactured from. Uh, which means contemporary art, skateboarding, music, fashion film, graphic design, illustration, and everything in between. Uh, my name is Sven Fortman, aka 40. Uh, I'm the editor-in-chief of this highly influential publication named Lowdown. And with me today is Mr. Finn Greenall, a British gentleman based in Berlin that's probably known better as the singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, producer, festival A-lister, uh, label owner, band leader, acoustic geek, and all-around red guy, Fink. Thanks, man. That's a killer intro. Dude. It's not bad, right? That is great. And all of that is technically true. Technically, technically. true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, full disclosure, like, we, we know each other fairly well. Oh, man, yeah. We go back, like, I don't know, like, we're talking, like, double digits. I would say so. I mean, yeah. we, we featured you a couple of times in the magazine, uh -huh. um, We DJ together back in the days. Uh, basically, we, we know each other like also like when you were still working in Soho. Yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, that's I think, a long time ago. I mean, the beautiful thing, I guess, is that we met through the magazine. Like you, that's in, true. We met because you came to my studio in Hampstead. I think. I think it was around the time like when. Uh, You just put out like the the label anthem, We Are Ninja. Oh, yeah. So 99 then. <laughs> hey, good times. <laughs> good times. Yeah. And obviously, like we're doing this, I would say, award-winning radio show together on yeah. KCRW named the Fink and 40 Show. I mean, we haven't actually won any awards yet, but I'm Dude. sure <laughs> it's award-winning in the future. Yeah. 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 At least. At They least. Haven't, haven't made an award big enough for us yet. That's true, actually. Is that what it is? Yeah, they still have to invent one. Exactly. Ah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, how's 2020 treating you as an artist so far? Like, is it the, the new realities like we're all facing? Uh, are they working? It's a weird one, isn't it? 2020. I mean, um, at the beginning of the year, it was all about um, gigging like crazy, like any other normal year in, in, in my cycle. And then um, and we had American tour planned and European tour planned, the Africa tour on the books right, for the yeah. first time. And, you know, we were talking Asia and, oh, you know, we had, a, we had gigs to, to, to go. And mm. then, and then all of a sudden you haven't. So it, it, on the one hand, there was a real sense of euphoria at the beginning in, in February and March where you're like, okay, you're not touring. Oh, wow. I've got so much time to be with myself and be in the <laughs> studio. And then, you know, a, a month later, you're just kind of like, um, so it's been really weird for all of us touring musicians. It's just been kind of like what we do has been removed. True. So, um, so what else do you do? And it has led to a large existential crisis for, for most of us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, 
if you if you if you base your ego on a round of applause every five and a half minutes and you don't get a round of applause for nine months, it's a bit of a hardcore like head head spin to be honest. Yeah, but there's still live streams. <laughs> there's no applause though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, or, or, or the cameraman or, or your wife kind of goes at the end of the song. It's kind of slightly different vibe. I mean. I've really embraced the time and just like a lot of creatives, when you're faced with a large amount of empty space, you want to fill it with mm. new stuff. So um, we've all been, we've all been super busy doing other stuff. None of us have just kind of gone great. Let's go on holiday for six months. Yeah. Um, mainly because of the fear of like, well, what if, um, what if, what if touring doesn't come back? Uh, you know, uh, so who are you? basically and that's the thing like like who knows at this point right well i mean If, i mean like touring will come back like in one way or another but i i can't see it happening the way we are used to it like over for the next two or three years actually i mean these cultural shifts are fascinating if you're like a culture vulture and you like looking at like cultural cycles and the waves on the, on the beach of life and mm. they, they sometimes they mark permanent shifts like you know men wearing hats kind of was a thing for hundreds of years and then all of a sudden it wasn't a thing anymore and i'm sure if you were the hat maker you thought oh, hats will come back you know it's just a, it's just a moment in time but they never did or or like you know i mean i really hope they do and we all love going to see live music mm. and we all, we all love live events and hanging out with each other it's great and and us right now yeah we've moved all our touring to 22 mm. so i mean um 21 it just doesn't look doesn't sound really cool to think, okay, I'm going to be on an airtight bus where the windows don't open with 14 unhealthy guys <laughs> um, playing a different city every night. You just think, dude, yeah. I can't even imagine that right now. Like I've seen this year, I've seen three cities maybe total, you know, and yeah. like normally I'd see more than that in a week. So Yeah, for now, you know, we're all just dealing with it, as as is everyone in every creative industry that involves like collaboration. It's all of it, right. like okay, that that element has to be has to be changed and, and worked with, you know. But this this kind of like new extracurricular activities you were talking about, you know, like in your case, you know, like you were basically like building up young artists, oh, or yeah. you're doing master classes, mm -hmm. or you're doing the occasional score and stuff. Yeah. Um, in comparison, like, does it feel a bit like a Like like a scam almost compared to what you're usually doing. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Well, it's just as real as playing a gig. I mean, the the, the beautiful thing about helping young creatives mm. is you get that real kick out of it. Of like, there is something I've learned. It doesn't. It won't necessarily lead you to like financial success or like a, a, a you know a, a Porsche Carrera or something. <laughs> Um, but um, I can, I, I've certainly written a few songs and I've certainly done a few gigs and I've definitely, you know, been in the music industry since 92. So it's, mm. I've seen like everything change. I've seen the whole landscape completely get flattened and rebuilt in that time. Right. So uh, maybe those of us that are a little bit more longer in the tooth can kind of go, hey man, well, when I started doing all this, there wasn't even a mobile phone. So things can change, life can change, <laughs> you know, like Instagram. I remember driving in my car like uh, uh, like last year and playing like a live radio stream on Bluetooth into my car and just thinking, wow, none of this existed when I had my first car. I that's had a, that's a, a very positive way on 
they're looking about these kind of things. Yeah, you know? sure, man. I mean, I'd love a, I'd love an old car with a tape deck in it, but then you got the problem of like, well, I haven't got any tapes, you know? <laughs> or at least all the tapes I do have are kind of like hip house. And like, <laughs> Good times. <laughs> Good times. And like, you know, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I really try and remain like really wide open minded as to you should never like, never cling to attachments. And one of those attachments is like routine and habits. And yeah. if you're like a creative, you can get totally stuck in those routines too. Album promo tour, album promo tour. You can get, maybe it's going to be a different vibe. And working with young creatives is great because they don't have the baggage that, that you've got. So right. on a specifically musical way, it's like the, the new kids in the music scene, they don't even look at album cycles they don't even really consider tours. It's different. Not. It's more like, um, what's our content rollout going to be? Mm. As opposed to, you know, who's plugging the record to Austrian radio? They're more like, who's making my Instagram, you know, splashes for this this campaign? It's yeah. like such a different way of looking at things. So songs are getting shorter, intros are getting cut, choruses first. Even the nature of songwriting itself has changed in the past five years. Or, you know going back full cycle to the kind of mid-60s, early 60s, where it was all like, start with the chorus, two and a half minutes, fade it out, that's enough. Yeah. We're back there. If you listen to like a... If you're in a taxi and you listen to like A-list radio, anywhere in the world, it's pretty much the same playlist now. That's true. And, um, you know, the re a radio edit used to be three minutes 30 was the kind of your outer edge of a radio edit. Now it's like two minutes 20. <laughs> You've got to just get on with it. There's no fat at all. Mm. It's like the attention span is definitely shrunk. I mean, we all said that when it was like MTV has shrunk the attention. There's an MTV generation. Their attention span is like yeah, four for minutes. Sure. But now it's like a minute and a half, you know? It's kind of... You can look at it and be like, oh, that's really bad. You know, in this climate, Pink Floyd would never have been signed and, you know, so on and so on. But um, yeah, they would. They'd be signed to an indie. Yeah, no, no doubt about it, man. Yeah. So what, what, do you, what do you imply? Like basically like that, if you want to basically like pull something positive out of this whole situation, like that the, the lockdown thing and the, especially for artists, like the way they have to readjust to the situation, is it for... Some, I wouldn't say the majority, but for some, like a, like a necessary slap in the face. Yeah, it's a bit like these extreme situations culturally always act as a kind of extinction event. Yeah. So like you can, one, maybe the most obvious one was punk. It just came along and utterly swept the board, completely changed the entire industry. All of a sudden people like... Um, Luther Vandross and, you know, the kind of, you know, easy listening kind of mainstream pop music was completely redundant in the space of six months. And they were just left kind of looking around being like, what the hell just happened? Yeah. And so rap changed everything in that, in that sense. All of a sudden, if you're making um, party music mm. and you're not, and you're not hip to rap, then it's like, do where have you been for the yeah, 80s? True. And And, and maybe lockdown, okay, it's not a musical genre, okay, but it is, it, but it is a moment where we, can, where we all have to have a bit of a reflection and be like, okay, what, what's going to happen after? I mean, we will see, like, like you, you can already feel it this year. Basically, this lockdown thing suddenly became a new genre, right? Because all of a sudden you have this extra sessions and you have, like, I don't know, alternative it's versions true. en masse. And 
everything's gone acoustic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, totally. God, man. I'm so sick of acoustic <laughs> sessions. Man. I don't want to hear another cover version this year, man. I know. I mean, it's a bummer for me. I'm an acoustic musician and I'm uh, thinking of doing some covers online. No! But it's like, no! <laughs> no more Beck covers. Beck's not allowed anymore. Yeah, true. I mean, it is. I think next year's musical output is going to be very DIY. Mm. And I think that on the, on, the, on the visual sense, it's going to be very um, uh, paradise uh, sort of centered. It's going to be very sort of hyper realistic. Sort of uh, the future is an incredibly bright neon, fantastic place. Yeah, like pure escapism. Whereas on the musical side, it's going to be more like, oh, dude, I made this in my bedroom because like I can't gig to afford to pay for a studio to record it properly, and it's going to be that times everybody. What what will happen to to dance music? What will happen to clubland? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I still because guess basically you know you know like it seems at this point as if it's like like an obsolete genre, basically. I mean, as, totally as, as much as they want to entertain the idea like that people will have like a little party in the kitchen and stuff, Yeah, obviously like it's a different kind of thing as if you're experiencing it with like hundreds of people in a, in a proper club. Man, I totally feel for my dance brothers Absolutely. and sisters. It's just, I can't imagine it. I mean, um, it's a bit like I'm in a metal band and you take electricity away from me. <laughs> you're like well technically you can still all hang out in the rehearsal room and play your new folk <laughs> it's not going to be good is it nah. so i really feel for my dance friends man i mean i don't know i mean i still get sent a lot of promos and that's our, the thing right because of our radio show and stuff i get i still get all these dance promos and um man i mean i just think how do you motivate yourself when you think okay my medium is a sweaty club with some strobes at four in the morning in berlin on a tuesday night and now that's not there where is your muse now yeah true is it, is it all because dance music you can't really go internal with it it's not really kind of like i'm going to sit at home and listen to deep house on my headphones for two hours you you, you mm. just don't want to do that which lots of people do i'm sure but <laughs> um because even when you do that you're thinking oh if i was in a club right now be, oh, if i was on a you know, beach, if I was, a, I'd be the sunset right now. You know, you always like give these moments to it. And yeah. I mean, it might be the end. It might be the end only because your audience, there's going to be a big gap there mm. of a, of a, there's going to be a two year gap of people that didn't hit 18, go clubbing for a year, do make all those terrible mistakes that are awesome that you do. And then now you've always got the reference to, okay, when I hear, I'm going to think, oh yeah, do you remember that time? When That's we were like all a thousand people going like, Rah! you know, no, mm. you, you won't remember that time. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Hard to tell, man. Like, um, as, yeah. as you said it, like, like um, I'm, I'm feeling so sorry for, for the many, many, many artists, like I know, like who are working in this business because yeah. it is a business. Um, and yeah, like it must be the, the most frustrating situation ever. I mean, part of me, full disclosure, mm. when, when, I, when I do talk Zoom chat with DJs living in their mansions, I do kind of go, there's no DJ money now, is there? I do a little... Ah, that's of me, so mean. I know, I shouldn't say You're that on jealous. camera, should I? Well, I <laughs> absolutely am. But when I do a, when I, when I do a gig, and uh, I remember I was, I was uh, talking to a dear friend of ours, Mr. Jones, and mm. he sent me a picture of his load-in for a gig, and it right. was a USB key. 
and a pair of headphones. Yeah. And I sent him my load in for my gig where I was going to earn like a quarter of what he earned that night. <laughs> and it was a it was a truckload of equipment <laughs> in flight cases, like virtually filling up a venue. So, yeah, part of me is kind of like, I know, you know, that's another thing that's been lost, which is the whole kind of. Yeah, Friday night I'm playing Budapest, Saturday night I'm flying to Beijing, mm. a Sunday night I might just do Tokyo and then I'm flying back on Monday, uh, doing a remix on Tuesday, then I'm flying to Mexico on Wednesday. You know, mm. all that flying stuff is gone. Which so in a way is a good thing, obviously. It, it, it can be considered a good thing for the environment, but mm. if, if you're like um, that guy, um, you can't travel, you can't DJ, you can't... Yeah, like, then you're fucked. Do, you can't do that thing that makes you who you are. It's, it's this existential crisis. I think for the dance music guys... Um, I think um, maybe they're maybe feeling it the hardest. I mean, it's difficult if you're a young indie band and you go, okay, I'm, we're in a band, we all sound pretty good. Um, we're going to play every toilet in Europe and someone's going to notice us. And it's like, okay, now you can't play any toilets anywhere, so no one's going to notice you. But the benefit is like, uh, since they're hopefully staying together, like they will be a lot tighter. Yes. Because they rehearsed their asses off. I know. But, you know, bands at, at that early stage of their career, they tend to implode real easy. If, if, if it, it, you know, it's all fun. It's all fun. It's all great. It's all, mm. it's all dreams. And then if it turns into a grind of like, okay, let's go to the rehearsal room and rehearse the same 10 songs again for like no reason. Yeah. It can get really demoralizing. Yeah, sure. So it's, it's, it's weird how in this really interconnected communicative world that we're in um you can feel really isolated you don't know who's out there so if you do a gig you know that 500 people or a thousand people or whatever 20,000 people like you in mm. berlin on wednesday because they were there and they they came and saw you and they clapped and you can go okay i can do the math on that but when you move everything virtual you just don't know Who's, yeah, true. I mean, you can look at your Instagram feed and be like, how many people liked my picture of my breakfast? Okay. But that doesn't give you an idea of how am I doing? You That's true. I mean? and, yeah, of course. And I think as creatives, we often have to deal with the fact that there is no grade. Like it's, you know, none of us are living in, well, some of us are living in <laughs> mansions and, and have fast cars and stuff, but most creatives are doing it for the love of the creativity Absolutely so we, true. We, we sacrifice the kind of, you know, cars, holidays, sick days, you know, money, just because we want to do what we do. Mm. And, um, but for most of us, there is no tick or grade or exam that you take every year or, or, or raise or promotion or anything yeah. like that. It's just, it's just constant, like a world of being creative. So yeah, it's hard to know how well you're doing. You might be true. doing, you might be doing immensely well. I have no idea. <laughs> like um, um, uh, Charles Mingus, I read his autobiography. Uh, it was fascinating because he was washing dishes in a restaurant when he realized he was famous. Because, Seriously? Because he, he wasn't. In, in his own world, he was just unemployable musician washing dishes in between gigs. Mm. And then in this really fancy restaurant. And then some clients of the restaurant sort of saw the doors swing open and saw through the doors. Oh my God, they were from Europe. They're European jazz fans. They saw it was Charles, it was Charles Mingus, like doing the washing up. Oh my God. And they went in there. and was like, oh, you're, you're amazing. You're Charles Mingus. Oh my God, you're like a legend. And then he realized I had no idea, mm. but I'm a thing in France. 
Is this a true story? I think it, well, it's in his, his autobiography. <laughs> Then it should be true, yeah? His well, autobiography stretches the truth, I think, quite a lot. Mm. But um, you can, I can easily imagine that. You know, you, you work in isolation, you put stuff online, and you don't know what that many streams means or, or how many people listen to your music or like it or love it or whether it's changed their life or whether it's just a background elevator music. Yeah. Um, it's quite, that's, that's going to be the thing that I think most creatives find the hardest to deal with with this lockdown thing. It's the whole, I don't know how well I'm doing or mm. how badly I'm doing, which is often much better feedback than, oh, dude, that's really good. <laughs> you, it's much better feedback. Oh, dude, that's really shit. And then you're like, oh my God, it is, isn't it? You know? <laughs> no, you always remember the bad reviews. You never remember the good ones. Seriously? Absolutely. Like, there's no, in my life, for sure. I don't read my, I don't read my reviews anymore. Absolutely not. If you believe the good ones, you have to believe the bad ones. And I don't want to believe the bad ones. <laughs> so in the early days, you read all the good ones and be like, yeah, I am. Voice of a generation, genius, you know, once in a lifetime artist. And then you read the one review that goes, God, he's so full of himself. What a dick. And you go, I'm so full of myself. What a dick. You, 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 really, you really focus on negativity. Yeah. yeah. I think it's human nature. I beg to differ, actually. Are you beg to differ? Yeah. I mean, like, obviously, like, as you, as you just mentioned it, like, like, in, obviously, I believe you when it's the, the case if it was like this in the past but but i think like like this reading the 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 bad reviews um could also really help like to 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 i don't know like like reflect on on things you might have not seen before yeah i mean i know i'm talking to a journalist but um i don't i don't need a journalist to tell me that you know it's like i know what what where the flaws of my albums are so it's up to me to try and make them make them better in the future and, and i don't know so so it's basically like just like you're you're working strictly like under your own parameters well like all constructive criticism is gratefully received and i have a circle around me of people that that love love to speak truth to power um <laughs> You know, whether it's your partner or your manager or your label or your, or your, you know, your band or whoever it is. Mm. Um, and then you've got your, yourself who is your, who should be your greatest critic. You know, you, you need to be your number one fan and your number one and, and you are your greatest enemy at the same time. Right. So when I need like, when I write a song and I think it's really amazing, which I do every song on the day that I write it, I think, yeah, yeah, this is like up there with, you know, you know, Dylan or Lennon. Lennon, you know? yeah. yeah, absolutely. This is like a masterpiece. And then you go to bed and you wake up the next day with a new head and you go, okay, you know, it's not a Lennon, but it's decent. It, it's okay. Um, but then you play it to people, you get all these different reactions. It's great. Mm. But when it, when it comes to like, the finished article and you get the reviews, it, you just, there's nothing you can do about it now. So when the, when the reviewer, when, if the journalist goes, yeah, I see what he was trying to do. You're like, because oh. <laughs> I can't go, oh, you know, you're right. Give me a second. Give me another day. I'll just fix that. Mm. You're, you, it is what it is. So I don't know. I have a really strange, like, I have a strange relationship with feedback because the world, the world I live in is all judgment all all the time i make if i if i wasn't into the judgment process i wouldn't release mm. it i'd just make music for myself mm. and play it to myself and go that's great and then i go to work doing something else but because i release it i'm releasing it 
to judgment and and but, you, but this rings fairly true to any world right any world where you put your work out mm. there absolutely you know and you want people to love what you do but it shouldn't be the motivating factor for you to do what you do because ultimately the only person that needs to love it is you obviously like that's the ideal state but you know what we had earlier in this conversation you know like that you know the times they're changing so rapidly fast and all of a sudden you know like all these different platforms on the internet like they're becoming a new kind of currency almost and so obviously i think especially for a young artist like it's it's basically uh you you have to to play after these kind of mechanisms that these platforms offer right Yeah, you have to go with the ones that suit you. Yeah. Like, um, like there's a kind of artist that shouldn't go on TikTok. I'm one of them, <laughs> by the way. Um, but then maybe there's a way of me making TikTok re look, me without it being rubbish. Like mm. my relationship with Instagram. Right. Like your new relationship. You've been on Instagram for, lot, what, a week? <laughs> I love it, man. <laughs> I'm so into it. <laughs> you know, you have to find your own way of doing it. It's not about posting messages of your breakfast and stuff. Mm. It's You make it your own. Like, you, 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 you find your own way to make that platform true to you without you trying to be something that you're not. Mm. I think we can all sense that. Like, especially in this, you know, post-content world, we're all very much hyper-aware of filter stroke, no filter. We, 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 sure. we, we can sense it a mile yeah, off. Yeah when someone's not being genuine because we naturally gravitate towards genuine. And now even more so than ever before, because we've seen, we get to see so much fake that we really yearn for, for genuine. Mm. And I think as reflected in cinema, art, music, we just, what we want is the realness. Yeah. Um, you know, I find this really interesting in terms of, for example, like what you, what you did over the last Uh, year or two, you know, what we had earlier, like, you know, we, we basically like met also through DJing or we became even closer friends through DJing back yeah. then. Um, and obviously like then you made this transition musically and stuff. And then what I really like is that on the one hand, um, you do like the, the odd vocal part for, you know, club land, so to sure. speak, for artists yeah, yeah, like yeah. and me or Marcus Vogel and yeah, stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And um, they work perfectly well, I think. Well, I It, really love... I and then on the other hand, but on, on the very same year, like you're going on a solo acoustic tour in the US. I know. And basically, but but <laughs> it still fits together somehow, which I, it's a paradox almost. Well, as my manager said to me, you know, wisely, he said, um, you know, if if you're singing on the record, it's a think record. So, and another thing he said to me, which is really true, which was like, nobody's coming to the gig to see you play guitar, by the way. <laughs> so why don't you stop giving a shit about what, how your guitar sounds mm. and start caring more about how your voice sounds? Um, yeah. What was the question again? <laughs> Can't remember. I was thinking about me so much. I forgot. <laughs> As usual. <laughs> um, no, the, uh, that basically doing an acoustic solo tour through the US, which was really like, a, like an expensive one. Yeah, and that really was all over the place. It's so good, yeah. Um, that basically this can happen in the same realms as delivering the vocals for club acts. Sure. Well, the club thing is like, is, is it, do, do you do you still I feel just, occasionally like this kind of this kind of like fire? I do, yeah. I, and I still, you know, I was a DJ for ages. You know, Ninja Tune in the '90s. It was like the temple of 
turntablism, you know, it was just like, you know, if you were into the concept of this avant-garde new wave of lifestyle, mm. which was clubbing, oh, wow, there isn't an act. There's nothing to look at. What do you do? You know, you, you dance. What? That sounds really, <laughs> really weird. It is. It just doesn't sound weird now at all. But it was a massive thing for me. And I was really, really into this whole this whole political side of it all, the whole vanguard, the whole electronic music in, in my opinion, in the 90s, was this brave new frontier where anything's possible as long <laughs> as it fits in with this extremely prescribed, you know, box. But um, no chorus, no song, no singer, no band, no verses, no press shot, no name. You know, it, it's it's the... it's. It's like God is a DJ, but you're not. But 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 like God, you, you never get to meet him or know who he is. It doesn't matter who he is. More like like a spirit kind of thing. Yeah, it's just more like it, the DJ is mm. is just a conduit mm. for your experience. I don't know. It just felt extremely punk to me. That whole ethos that we are not only are we like let's say to go back to the punk analogy, you know. They're using drums and bass and guitar and singing and verses and choruses in a twisted way. Well, the electronic revolution of the 90s was like, yeah, all of that's gone. Mm. You know, why would you be a drummer? What's, <laughs> what's the point of that? You know, that's what my, my parents like that from the 50s. Didn't Elvis have a drummer? It's 1990. Come on, mm. you know. So being, I, I really felt, and and as you were as well, I've got many I was there moments from 90s clubbing land. Yeah, sure. First time I heard drum and bass, first time I heard Acid House that really moved me, first time I heard like, you know, El you played me LCD Sound System for the first time in and Watergate, true. first yeah. time I heard Losing My Edge, you know, and I remember these moments so clearly. So I think it's like, you know, like if you've ever done psychedelics, then after that you've always got a reference to psychedelic movies music whatever you can kind of get it if you've done psychedelics mm. and i think if you're from this kind of if you're from this like euphoric e-generation electronic 90s moment then you're always going to be yearning for that kick in or that breakdown you know you're always going to want that oh my god this is the best music in the world mm. moment so yeah I'm, i'm still like i i really get it i mean i don't go clubbing anymore um, I haven't been to a club for like, I don't know, years. I mean, um, I did try and go clubbing when I first moved to Berlin and I went to a lot of clubs and I really fell back in love with techno like big time. It's great. Mm. It's great here. Um, but I went to clubs so many times to go see a DJ that I really wanted. Ah, oh, dude, he's going to play some amazing, amazing stuff. And, it, and a lot of the times it did feel like a business, a business transaction, not like a, a musical moment that's going to change my world. Okay. Um, although I did have one of those in Berlin with Sven Veit. See? I know. <laughs> He was like, it was amazing that night at Watergate. He was, mm. it was amazing. It was, it was crazy. It was really wild. So yeah, mm. I, I, I like to do, I love doing vocals for my friends in, in, in electronic music if they want me to, because, um, I remember being a DJ and wanting vocals to play with. And in, in my day it was, you'd find an acapella on a, 12 inch and you'd mix it over the top of Aphex Twin Twack or something yeah. or, or Missy Elliott over like, you know, whatever. And, and, and now with the fact that we've all got technology, we've all got a studio in our laptops, we can just email each other the results. Um, yeah, it's, it's like, well, it's, a, it's an honor to be asked and mm. it's a pleasure to do it. But again, this it's again, it's a songwriting 
um, it's a songwriting like uh, discipline because the parameters are different when you're clubbing. Obviously, when you're sure. clubbing, you don't want to hear a song about how much I miss, you know, the rain or, or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know some kind mm-hmm. of Fink song. You know, mm-hmm. you, you actually want. I don't know what you want, mm-hmm. but yeah, <clears throat> I don't really see like there's a massive disconnect between. Maybe it's because there aren't many singer-songwriters who do like acoustic stuff who haven't this electronic heritage that I've got. Maybe that's why it feels a bit weird. I guess so, yeah. Um, but I, I love like the cleanliness of electronic stuff and the, and the purity of dance music because it's only got one agenda. It should only have one agenda. And that is, does it work at, on this dance floor at this time in this city? That's the agenda. So there's lots of music made for Bergheim. There's lots of music made for Watergate. I'm just naming Berlin clubs now. But, you know, there's when I was DJing in London, there was music made for Cargo and music made for yeah, 93 sure. Feet East and, and um, music made for Bricks and Basement Jacks down in Brixman, Brixman and stuff. So um, that, that's the thing, you know, like like when it comes to these kind of scenes, you know, like the the music is produced to have like an imminent effect on you absolutely and you know like when it comes to i don't know like music you do for example like uh if you missed it 10 years ago you might discover it like 20 years later and um all of a sudden think it sounds fresh and be completely into it which hardly will happen like with dance music i think that's you know nice link dude radio gold there because that's one of the reasons (laughs) (laughs) that's one of the reasons i moved out of dance music into um like the music I make now is because at the beginning of dance music, I was completely in love with the fact that there is no shelf life. This music is for right now mm. and it's for May 1997. And in June 97, it will be as irrelevant as every other record in this set. Mm. And I lo- I was addicted to that, that constant like... <laughs> I don't know, like, it wasn't even consumption, just mm. that, that constant nowness. I was totally addicted to it. And then um, I had some epiphany experiences with live music that kind of changed everything for me in just the space of a couple of months. Like, who who was the, what, what triggered this um, kind of effect? I had, like, basically, I was... DJing a lot for Ninja Tune mm. and I was international as well. So I was day jobbing it in the week for the majors, working in promotions, um, in vinyl. So all the vinyl would come in. I was one of the guys that would be like, these are the, these DJs get this record, you know, as that guy. And, and at weekends I'd fly off somewhere and DJ like Berlin mm. or like Hungary or like Austria, wherever, you know, um, And in in the pre-mobile phone management days, you know, before DJing was like a lifestyle choice where you can get paid, mm. it was it was more just community-based. You get That's to true. know your Austrian mates or your German mates or your French crew, you know. And it was really great, but I was starting to get ground down a little bit, starting to get bored of the treadmill of like new records, new set, do a set, do a gig. Everyone liked it, got really wasted, got on a plane, came home, did it again. And then 52 weekends later, I'm like, I'm still kind of this in the same spot, but a bit more knackered. Mm. Remember the woman at the bank who is nearest to my apartment? <laughs> I'd be coming into this bank with like a shoebox mm. with so many random currencies in it. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, hi, yeah, I just wanted to make a deposit, please. So there's some like Danish kroner, there's some like Polish <laughs> Zloty, you know, there's some... It was, they, I think they thought I was some kind of international drug mule. 
and I think in turn there probably was for and, quite a long and, and period they were half time. right yeah <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, yeah I was getting bored of the whole I was getting bored of clubbing and that's really scary when um, I'm sure every creative has this or that I hope they do because it's a really learning experience where you it, it, what you do is everything of your whole life I love music I love making it I love being it I love listening to it I love buying it I love everything about it and then all of a sudden I'm just bored mm. but then you're bored of your life it's not like I'm bored of like having sandwiches for lunch. Okay, then I'll have something else. If if you love, if what you love is all encompassing and then you fall out of love with it, you are kind of like, there's nothing left. And so I had this moment and also I used to be quite guilty, I think, of my partner would also be 50% of my ego. Okay. So um, I was never single because it it meant I was only half <laughs> it was only half. Yeah. My glass was half full at that point. So these things all came together at the same time. I was bored of clubbing. I was bored of DJing in bars and clubs and all that bollocks. Really tired of it. Didn't really see what the next thing was going to be. Uh, you know, everything seemed to have been rinsed in 2001. It was like two steps been done. Jungle's been done. Garage has been done. You know, minimal hadn't happened yet. Mm. Villa Lobos hadn't re, re de- mm. redesigned how long a set can be yet. I was just like, what happens next? I don't know. And then, um, um, and then I went to um, a Radiohead concert. Um, they were playing OK Computer live at uh, a gig called South Park. And they were supported by Beck doing a solo acoustic version of Sea Change. Mm-hmm. Um, the weekend after John Lee Hooker had passed away. So we threw a few John Lee Hooker covers into the mix. And uh, for me, that's now looking back, that's like holy grail moment. But mm. at the time I was just like, yeah, dude, I'll come to the gig. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, have you, you got any weed? Great. Okay, let's go watch Radiohead. I hear they're quite cool, whatever. Mm. And then after, at the end of that gig, I was so dumbstruck at how awesome that whole experience was. And I just thought, man, I haven't had one of those experiences in a nightclub for as long as I can remember. It just doesn't happen anymore. I want to quit everything I've got, day job, record deal, the lot. And I just want to be a roadie Mm. on that tour. Like just to be with these people and have their experiences. Okay. Now I know what a roadie does. I'm so (laughs) glad I didn't do that. But you know, it was a massive epiphany and I Mm. thought, okay, you need to register this as a moment. Like what, what does this mean? Cause indie is like your enemy, you know, like being in a band is like what? And now you're thinking, Oh my God, that looks amazing. And then I saw System of a Down mm-hmm. a couple of weeks later play the Astoria in London, which is a tiny club, um, on their first album, on the Soad album. And man, the energy in that club. And it was just like a Wednesday. It wasn't even like festival headline that everybody's been waiting for. Mm. It, for them, it was just a Wednesday. Gig in London, tomorrow will be in Paris. And the energy in that gig was just like, mm. oh my God. I've never experienced that in electronic music. If you, if you, if you take this experience and what you just mentioned, you know, like that all of a sudden, like you reach this point, like where you were coming really bored of this whole thing, like club culture, et cetera, et cetera. A little, yeah. When, when, when I look at your, your career as like the singer songwriter thing, then for me personally, like everything seems to have been built up towards Heart Believer. Okay. Like all the albums before, like they, they were all super cool. Mm. And there was like, like the, there was like, the first there was one hit, the second had maybe like two hits and so on. Right. And then Heart Believer all of a sudden like hits was, was a little H. 
It's a little, little, a little, a little age, yeah. And uh, with Happy Lever, all of a sudden, there was an album which basically was hits only. Hitsville. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was a hitscape. <laughs> um, <laughs> did you then, uh, was it a conscious decision then to do an album like Resurgam? Because all of a sudden, then you reach this and, okay, done. No, I'm bored. No. Let's do something completely different. No, it wasn't like that at all. Nope. It just happened to fail. <laughs> it, it, I, I didn't. This, I didn't want that either. But in, in your mind, was the the on, on the same road as as Heart Believer? I thought, yeah. I thought, mm. I thought, I thought. Um, well, this is taking a let. It's taking a. This is taking a tangent. This interview, isn't it? Um, yeah. When I wrote um, Hard Believer, that album, Hard Believer, I think it came out in 2013 or 2014 or something. Um, I wrote half of it in LA. I was living in LA. I was writing music for soundtracks. That, that's that's the thing. Excuse me for for interrupting. Like I remember, before you settled down in Berlin, like you entertained the idea of either moving to Amsterdam or LA instead, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, but LA it does something to you, man. You know, even if you're even if you think you're immune to its evil charms. You're not. Mm. And that's why so many people, so many creative people end up in LA thinking, ah, yeah, but I, I, I'm different though. I'm, I'm, I'm way too cool to be affected by like, oh, you want to have lunch? Oh, I'd love to. Oh, no way. You think I could write with her? Wow, I, I, could, I could buy a house in that way. And then all of a sudden you're in. Mordor has, has got, it's got his eye on you. I mean, It's it's the only place in the world if you're a musician where you can have a meeting at lunch and you're a millionaire by the time you've driven home. It doesn't happen in Berlin, doesn't happen in Paris, doesn't mm. happen anywhere else. It can happen every day in LA. Ah, so, still? Absolutely, of course. <coughs> so, um, yeah, you you could be asked to do a, write, a songwriting job in a studio and you get there and it's, you know, Ariana Grande sitting there mm. and you're like, okay, my life's different now. I like this. Yeah, You know what it happened to James Blake in a way? Anyway, that's another story. <laughs> um, so... Um, Uh, so it, the, the, the Hard Believer album has a kind of commercial edge to it. One, mm. because I was like naturally going there anyway. I was I was arcing out of being a singer-songwriter who self-produced, like referencing my kind of, I do everything myself. That's the 90s ethos. That's the bedroom bedroom producer in me. I've got my own desk and my own, you know, I produce all my own stuff. Yeah. And then... I did this album called Perfect Darkness, which we re-recorded in LA, and I realized, oh, if somebody else does all of that, it sounds way better. <laughs> and you suddenly, like, raise your game a bit, and you kind of puff your chest out a bit and go, okay, I need to raise up to this level. Mm. And then Hard Believer, I was kind of leaning into that, you know. I was just feeling like I want to be a band now. I don't want to be the, the guy who carries everything. I want to be the guy in a band. Mm. And so we were becoming a band. So Hard Believer was like a band record. You know, we wrote it together and we recorded it together and we did it in LA and it was all like, oh, dude, really cool. And the songs were written for our tours because the tours had slowly gone from 200 people in, 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 a, in, your, in your entry level shithole. Um, they were starting to get up to like, Which gigs have we not sold out on the tour? Mm. Why haven't we sold out Leipzig on a Tuesday? We need to work on Leipzig rather than, oh, dude, we sold out Paris. Can you believe that? You know, it's, it turned. Yeah. And it meant that you could start writing songs going, okay, I'm going to play this at Par in Paradiso in Amsterdam. It's going to be sold out. It's going to be amazing. And then you're going to strike into this song. <gasps> What's it going to sound like? Mm. Um, 
And so you start writing into that. And it, maybe it's like you, you see it with all the bands you love when they become stadium sized. And all of a sudden, the next album you're going to hate because you're not the guy that goes to the stadium gigs, but it'll be the one with the oh, 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 stadium riffs on it. And you'll be like, God, I hate this band now. Mm. And they're, they're just writing into their experience of, hey, dude, we're going to walk out on San Siro and play this. What's it going to sound like? Yeah, and it's sure. not going to sound like, you know, fake plastic trees, unfortunately. It's going to sound like a Coldplay track. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so Resurgam, their album that came after Hard Believer, yeah, I went through a lot of personal stuff after Hard Believer, um, and um, and I moved to Ber- and I moved to Berlin as well. Um, I sold my house, I sold my car, and I moved. I, I left the UK, and you know, just everything kind of changed. And um, and I just didn't write. I didn't write the. Uh, I didn't write the records. Um, I thought I was writing the follow up to Hard Believer, but it turns out I wasn't. Mm. I was writing something else. I mean, there are some really great tracks, and I love it. And it oh, also yeah. opened my relationship a, with um, yeah. with Flood, who's now my sonic mentor. Um, and I really needed a sonic mentor. I needed a producer who was like a grown-up to sort of give me some new rules. Mm. And rules like, it's finished when it's awesome, as opposed to, and deadline is just a suggestion. <laughs> these classic... That's so decadent. Anti- I know, it's great, but these are classic anti-establishment memes. Mm. That is the reason why Flood's produced Nick Cave, U2, PJ Harvey, Depeche Mode, because he's that guy. They don't want the guy that's like, the label says it needs to be done by July, so uh, July we're done. He's the guy that's be like, fuck the label. It's done when it's great. And, and I, I, like when I he, he's, he's the one getting paid, so obviously he's saying <laughs> yeah. that. So. Well, not necessarily. No, not necessarily. The, as a producer, you, you, you might think, okay, I'm going to get paid for this, producing this record, mm. but it doesn't mean it's going to take a week. You might want it to take a week, but it might take six months. Because, mm. but you you still you don't get you don't charge by the hour. <laughs> yeah, but but six months is more like Happy Monday style. So I don't know, man. I mean, you know, from the moment you start writing to the moment you master the record as an artist, that can be an eighteen month arc sometimes. But look, you know, you unfortunately, I'm not Chris Martin or like Paul McCartney, where you can just on cue write a massive hit. Mm. Um, And um, at, that's also a really great song, you know. And um, every time I try and do that, I utterly suck. At, I, I just suck at it. I mean, it's like, it's just like making um, techno. Everybody listens to techno, maybe, and sort of goes, I could do that. And my my I mean, kid could do I this. My child could draw that. Mm. And it's like, yeah, but, but he doesn't though, does he? Mm. It's like every time I try and make a credible techno track, I epically fail. You know why? Because <laughs> it's way harder than you think. Mm. It's not just a beat and some noises. Mm. It's just not. Same with writing songs. So, yeah, I thought I wrote the follow-up to Hard Believer when I wrote Resurgam, but mm. um, actually Resurgam, I think I now look at as a bit of a stepping stone record, personally and artistically. I needed to do that record to do the next one, and the next one yeah. is a beautiful, is a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's the thing, like, with, with um, Bloom Innocent, you know, like, I would say, like, that's basically, like, your your Pink Floyd moment, oh, so to I speak. Love it. I was wondering <laughs> what you were... <laughs> I was wondering what you were going to say there. I was hoping Magnum Opus, but no. Nah, Pink not, Floyd moment. Not yet, man. Wh- which Pink Floyd, though? What, the, the, the rubbish stuff or the good stuff? Dude, like, I, I only know Dark Side of the Moon, obviously. Is it? Okay, yeah, so that's my... I have very little ding, knowledge ding. about music. <laughs> um, that's a perfect place to be for a music journalist <laughs> um, 
Yeah, Bloom Innocent was, yeah, that's a, was the a thing, delight. Like, like when when it comes to the the transition from uh, Resurgam to Bloom Innocent, which mm. has like a very different vibe, I think it does. Um, and I love, by the way, uh, and usually I'm not a fan of it. Like that, basically, that there's like four different versions existing of Bloom Innocent. There's yeah, there's three official releases yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. There's the yeah because I wanted to explore the fact that it's not me being lazy. I promise. I wanted to explore the fact that the song is as a song can mm. actually wear different outfits. And that's that's the thing. Like like um, I would never ever consider this as being just lazy and like no, let's twitch and turn like a little things there to make it sound different um it's just like for me it means like that the original songs like have so much potential that you can easily twitch and turn them and make something really utterly unique out of it once again i mean maybe this comes from my remix culture background maybe that i'm like because yeah. when i did this album called horizontalism which was a remix album of hard believer yeah which is <laughs> which is kind of out there a little surreal basically and it, well, it's very Berlin inspired but um, actually it was made just just down the road um, true yeah it was yeah, made just over there um, it was because um, Ninja sort of said oh you should do a remix album it was it was just an easy way of creating more product and it didn't cost much money and mm. you know you can just get a bunch of remixes done and um, and I was kind of like uh, well I was really inspired by this Massive Attack album where Mad Professor did uh, no, mm-hmm. no Protection. And the weird thing about that record is when I bought it, whenever it came out, 94 or something, 95, I don't know, one of those, mm. um, I, I thought it sucked because I, was, <laughs> I wanted to buy another Massive Attack record. Yeah. And it definitely wasn't, you know, Massive Attack, you know, it was Mad Professor. Mm. And, I, and subsequently... Um, it's become one of my favorite records because I like the concept of giving another producer the whole record and be like, do whatever you want. And then you get something new. Mm. So with, uh, with the horizontalism, I did that instead of getting other people to remix it, I just remixed it myself on tour, on the road in, in Tinker Towers, you know, just, yeah. um, to try and give the whole remix album concepts, a, a, a like a, a beautifully thorough, like, um, go, mm. um, I love that record because I really did go to town on it and 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 put a lot of time into it. But I think after making a kind of alternative pop record like Hard Believer, making a Berlin drone wave electronic record <laughs> of interpretations of that record maybe was, I don't know, like um, it confused a lot of people. It didn't confuse that, that, me. For me, the journey exactly, was like, that's, all made that's sense. The thing. But it, a lot, uh, some, it, some people were really definitely confused a lot of people. <laughs> that's for sure. And then I did a traditional blues album. Which confused even more people. I know, I know. And then I did Resurgam, which was like a bloated rock. <laughs> Some people were going mad. Yeah, it was like, dude. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. But, but that's um, the thing, like, you know, like when, when, you, when you follow the journey from the, let's say, like, horizontalism, uh, Hard Believer takes to Resurgam to Bloom Innocent and the, the blues album in between. Mm. I think, like, especially like now with Bloom Innocent and the different version, which are out there, um, Three different versions, pop pickers. We've got the acoustic version, which re-recorded, not not just you know yeah, totally true. redone yeah, yeah, in yeah, a yeah, new yeah. studio live. Um, but then, that's the thing. Yeah. Like like uh, like for me, it feels like that you can by now you can totally start from scratch, whatever your next album will be. Yeah, well, I'm you know, already, you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I know what I want it to be. So but this is the problem with creation, you, you know. Mm. I remember before I made anything, you would think that um, someone like Mozart would sit down and have it all in his head 
and be like, right, I've decided the next thing's going to go like, you know, we know that's not the case with creation. Of course not. Nobody does that. Unless you're writing some generic thing that you've written loads of times before, you know, okay, A minus CG, got it, we'll do that. But I think you can't, as a creative, you know roughly where you're going, Mm. but you don't know what it's going to be like at the end. Otherwise, you just know what this, you just know in advance. You'd lose the will to live just knowing what you're going to do in advance. You start a song, I reckon Beethoven and Bach and all these guys were the same as us. You'd start a song, you get a cool riff, oh, that's kind of cool. Write some lyrics, oh, they kind of work. Put some drums on, oh, yeah, that's kind of awesome. You don't sit down and go, the drums are going to go like this, the bass is going to go like this, the guitar's mm. going to the song's going to be like this, the chorus. You just, you kind of feel it out. That's hopefully, my vibe. Hopefully, yeah. And, you know, I, I think, like, I'm sure the old classical dudes, I mean, a lot of it was kind of business transactions, you know, it's work for hire, right? But, yeah, you know, I think in, in the modern creative era, we're not doing work for hire. We find ways to pay us to do exactly what we want. On the other hand, like, do you think that you reach this point like where you overthink music a little bit too much? I think I've reached And, the, and, and not let it like flow as it should? I think I've reached the opposite point. Oh, really? Yeah. I, re I think I, when I started, I really overthunk everything. Yeah. Everything had to be perfect. Every session had to be perfect. Every, everything had to be how it needed to be. Now I'm like the total opposite of that. Bloom Innocent was essentially recorded live in a studio with three mics. That's it. My sound card has four inputs. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, a flood mixed it down for me because he's amazing and he's, he's a genius. But um, I'm deliberately trying to let go of all of that judgment and preconception and stuff in order to make better music. So the Bloom Innocent record is one of my favorite albums only because I really did let go of all that stuff. I'm not writing singles. I'm not writing focus tracks. I'm not writing. I'm just writing whatever I want to hear, you know, and it's just a, I had to really learn to let go. Hashtag <coughs> learn to let go. Um, is it really hard to basically get to this point to let loose of not thinking about the focus tracks, which then basically will guarantee that it will get like a, it will reach a different radius. Yet yeah, it is difficult to do that. Like it's difficult to rid yourself of, of any attachment that you've got. It's always hard, but at the same time, your idols didn't care what you thought. So you have to kind of channel that. Tom York's not writing his next album and he, for me to go, oh, you know what, I want, I want some 40-plus guy living in Berlin to think this is really cool. He's not thinking that at all. He's just going, I'm doing what I want to do and if I think it's cool, then it's cool. And then I'm going to love it even more because he doesn't care what I think and that's what I want. Mm. So I really tried to go there. I went there with my blues album and I went there with this Bloom Innocent record. It was really kind of like, look, if I like it, then that's the main thing. If this is going to be an expensive hobby, <laughs> which is what Resurgam, the album Resurgam kind of felt like, it felt like, wow, you're going to be paying for that one for a while. It's like, <laughs> I'm still paying for it. Um, then, um, then it's got to be, you've got to love it. And, and it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. I mean, obviously you want, deep down, you want people to go, 
oh, it's lovely, I loved it, it touched me, it changed me, whatever, whatever your gig is. Um, um, but you can't, that can't be part of your, pro, your creative process because then your creative process is like, is, is, it, the water's muddied by your anxiety about what people are going to think. So you'll never be truly creative. You're kind of forever writing to the brief of somebody that you'll never meet. Can't it be both? No. <laughs> Why not? Because music made with anxiety for the results is inferior to music made without anxiety. Yeah, I'm I mean, like we, we, we had this discussion before, you know, like when, you know, like when you're always questioning yourself, doubting yourself, like obviously like there's a, like a different vibe to it. Like there's a different nuance coming to the table then. Well, look, doubting yourself is useful because it raises your game. Mm. If, you, if you're listening to your track and you're thinking, oh, that chorus isn't very good, it's not very good. When you listen to your, when you listen to your favorite Bonnie Ver track, you 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 don't for one moment ever go, ah, oh, that lyric's not very good, is it? Or no, I think you should have chosen a different snare for that. Never, mm. you, you you're left with no question marks, and it should be the same when you listen to your own music. Surely, it should always be like, there's nothing I can make better here. This just sounds perfect to me. Even if that's you've recorded this track on your phone, it's like actually I can't. That sounds perfect. I don't need to go into a fancy studio and redo it because it just it's never going to sound better than that. Mm. That's that's the truth right there. I mean, you will go to LA and record it in a fancy studio, spend 20 grand on it <laughs> and end up releasing your phone recording, I guarantee it. But, you know, if you if you know, if you if you really only make creative decisions based on what people are going to think about you, you're not really going to be the kind of artist that you want to be. You might as well be in marketing. <laughs> you might as well sell detergent you'll you'll make way more money and, and have a much more relaxed that's very time. true unfortunately yeah. you know if you're if you're the creative director of unilever trust me your bonus is better than if you're you know an engineer in a recording studio and that's why the the ceo <laughs> of spotify was so right that it's all about the the, the sheer quantity yeah i mean he's in a tricky spot I think. <laughs> of course he is. He's yeah. in a tri there's a, you know, it's very difficult to say anything these days about anything, you know, if you're in that position of, of power. Spotify's done a lot of great stuff for a lot of artists. Um, and um, what a lot of artists might forget potentially, although I'm not judging anyone and they can think whatever they like, is that It wasn't so long ago that you would have to pay a record store to take your record. And then they'd buy your record off you for three euros. They'd put it on the shelf for 15 euros. And you had to give them a free CD for every three that you sold them. And you had to pay them to rack it in a good spot. Mm. How does that sound better than it costs nothing to put it on the platform, nothing for you to put a link on your social media to the track you don't have to make anything send it anywhere and you've got just as much chance as drake of getting a play <laughs> i know i know i'm being super super naive here mm. but you know in theory on, on paper it works of course it's like the stores the, i'm not talking about indie record stores obviously i'm talking about the big major yeah, yeah, sure. chains they they had a monopoly over the music industry for decades that was obscene and i think streaming has realigned that you know there are no longer massive record store chains mm. and and as an artist that 
was in that world on, on both sides of the fence as both the guy trying to get racked and the guy buying racking for the majors. I'm like, I, I don't miss that world at all. I'd much rather take the level playing field, even though it's an infinitely large playing field of a streaming site over if you want to get racked in HMV, um, you better bring 35 grand to the table in a bag and then we'll put you on the front of the store, which I Very think is the best thing, you know? So I always thought that was wrong. I was, I was so upset when I found that shit out because I was working as a junior marketing guy and um, I was r- running this urban project I think it was ludicrous actually a track called roll a track called rollout mm. and um i and then i got offered uh, the pack the urban pack in uh, in uh, for, for a major uh, sh- uh, retail chain mm. and i'm like what do you mean you, you buy that i thought the i thought the retail chain listened to all the music and went oh, the best stuff this month is this one and this one oh, you got to get it special offer it's gonna be great and i thought that was curated mm. no you just bought you just buy it you can just buy that urban pack and then you rack it. I just thought that was... Because all my life, I just thought that they were curating this stuff, mm. helping me out. It turns out it was just who could pay for it. That's only a draft trade, man. Well, I mean, one of, one of the... I oh, see it. There's so, many weird, there's so many weird angles these days. But, you know, Rough Trade's one of the greatest record stores in the world. And the indie record stores, the ones that have survived the book of Eli level of Armageddon that the industry's <laughs> gone through, they're amazing now. Mm. I mean, indie stores now are just like, they're like heaven. You listen to records, you can buy shoes, you can buy a book, you can have a have, coffee. Have a coffee. I mean, Rough Trade East in New York is like the coolest, there's even a venue. That's the thing. Yeah, I mean, It's like the coolest space you could imagine in the world. It's, it's basically just, like what... <clears throat> what you always thought like the, the the world high fidelity opened you know oh like oh my god yeah basically like now we finally reached oh this I mean, god, in terms yeah. of independent record stores I mean, there's, there's almost all the indie stores from my youth aren't there anymore they were little mm. stores that sold niche side tracks in park street where i bought my first krs1 record my philosophy or um uh, replay records up the street where i bought fast eddie's acid thunder on white label mm. um and um Depth Charge in York, where I bought Nazis Illmatic, for example. <laughs> none, none of these shops exist anymore, you know. Um, but um, Resident Records in the UK and um, Rough Trade East in London, Rough Trade New York. These are like dream destination stores yep. now. I mean, the survivors have got it like they've just created a destination that's just I love. I want a coffee and I want to listen to these records. Okay, you can have that. <laughs> you know, they don't have to be a separate experience. Um, I mean, Berlin has changed a lot, but there used to be a record store on every corner, especially where I live. True. A lot of them have shut now, but there would, there'd be like, that one sells minimal, that one sells slightly harder minimal, that one sells maximal subhouse, that, mm. one's, that one sells like, you know, niched up to the Italian, Italo disco with a touch of, you know, <laughs> Valeric in the mix or whatever. It was so niche. It was great. But, uh, so we've had to, you know, the shops have had to, you know, broaden their horizons a little bit. But I think this, um, going back to the Spotify question a little bit, um, Spotify is a bit like window shopping because you don't actually get to keep, you don't get to keep it. Mm. No, nothing in your iTunes is yours either, by the way. It's all a lease. But, you know, 
it's a bit like window shopping. If you're really into music, you'll listen to it on Spotify and be like, oh man, I was really, I love this record. You listen to it again. You listen to it 10 times. And then maybe, maybe you'll go like, oh, you know, if I want to have this in my life, I'm going to order the vinyl from HHV or wherever you get, wherever, whatever independent retailer you get your vinyl from. And then it's in your life forever. Next time you want to listen to music, you might look down at your pile of records and pick one and play it. And it'll just be part of your life. So if you're not really into music, you're not really that into it that you actually buy it. Like, True. I don't go to the cinema, for example. I love movies. Enough, to buy, enough. enough to buy them? Uh, I'm not sure. So, you know, um, but um, a lot of people don't like music as much as I do. So they can buy a Spotify subscription and dive in whenever they like without the commitment of... Um, <coughs> Me and my drummer Timmy talk about this all the time. When you bought when you bought an album when you were a teenager in the eighties, I would wash my dad's car four times to get the five quid to go to the W H Smiths and buy one album mm. that month. And so you better make it good because it's the only one you're going to have that month. Very true. And if it sucks, well, that's it. No other choice. If you went, if you bought a Heaven Seventeen record, unlucky. If you bought a Human League record, if you bought Thriller, <gasps> jackpot. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, we know these records back to front because we listened to them. You know, we wore them out. My copy of Thriller, I don't, don't even, don't even, don't even know if it would even play anymore. Um, so, um, and you can do that with Spotify. You can have it on repeat forever for nothing if you like that. But I think, you know, a lot of a lot of people don't need to need to like music so much they need to buy it they just want to kind of browse it and it's nice that there's an option there because before you would what would you do like listen to the radio all day listen to like this highly curated incredibly polluted business decision all day or 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 maybe you'd ask your mates have you had any good records recently that i could borrow or something where spotify is kind of there's an algorithm for that now I know it's super controversial, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it gives you a suggestion that's like, ah, I like that. I would have never found that if I, if if that if AI hadn't hadn't offered that to me. Yeah, true. Is, is that wrong? Is it wrong to fancy Siri as much as I do? I guess so. It feels a little bit. It feels a bit her. Yeah, it's like it's, <laughs> you have this this kinky relationship with her at this point. I think. I think it's like. Honestly, you know me, man. I'm a very optimistic rainbow yeah, yeah, guy. Yeah, totally, man. And I'll find a silver lining even in the middle of a vortex of a monsoon as my house is getting destroyed. I'll be like, yeah, but it gives me a chance to think about where I am. Mm. And, you know, I get that from my mum for sure. But I think, you know, it's very easy to bash um, Spotify because it's it feels like it's free. Um But it isn't. If you get the numbers up, you get paid. Um, and it, when people say there's no money in the music business, they're just wrong. There's huge corporations that are making billions every year in the music business. You're just not making that kind of music. I mean, ask, you know, Calvin Harris if there's any money in the music <laughs> business. And he'll be like, well, dude, I haven't got time to chat right now. Come on my private jet and we'll have a, have a word. You know what I mean? Um, Whereas if you ask that um, avant-garde Swiss rhythm 
drone wave artist. Is there any money in the music business? They'll be like, no, Spotify's ruined everything. I can't sell a record now. So basically it's business as usual. Yeah, maybe it is, dude, you know. I mean, any... I was even okay with like the whole Napster Armageddon moment. I mm. thought, look, if if uh, MySpace is going to destroy, if Napster and MySpace are going to destroy the music industry, at least it might introduce people to my music. They'll buy a gig ticket. And I'll make more money from the gig ticket mm. than I would from the album sale by a mile anyway. Yeah, but, so, but you know, uh, what? Lars Ulrich, back to differ. I know, and, and he, <laughs> he, 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 he fundamentally regrets that think so oh yeah Lars definitely he definitely regrets saying that you know I mean he also regrets selling his Basquiat but that's another story I mean <laughs> regrets you know but um yeah I'm he regrets that but that was a moment where you know it's just like it's okay to make wrong decisions uh, you know drummers do as well you listen to my drummer you know the whole gigs worth of wrong decisions <laughs> it's like, um you know it's okay to change your mind mm. I mean I thought that um You know, like I say, you know, if, if you illegally download, like research from like 10 years ago was saying, if you illegally watch movies, if you torrent movies, you're way more likely to go to the cinema than people who don't. And if you illegally stream music, you're way more likely to buy music than people who don't. So where's the downside here? Actually, people who illegally download movies end up buying cinema tickets and you make way more money from that ticket than you would from, from them not doing it mm. you know controversial okay but um you know it was uh, like itunes free free download of the week when itunes was like ruling it itunes is the new record label 2006 oh my god the world is going to end type moment it was like man when i got that it changed my i, I got a quarter of a million downloads on pretty little thing in like a week and everything was changed mm. in like a heartbeat by giving it away so uh, so maybe i see spotify as like i'm kind of giving it away but if if it means that you buy a gig ticket or 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 you buy the vinyl or you know if it leads you into a relationship with me and what i do then it was it's a good trade if there's millions of you <laughs> <laughs> so on, on, if there's 500 of you then i definitely need to rethink the model but you know <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? you, you know what i mean though. yeah of course you know so on This happy note on piratry and uh, illegal downloading, <laughs> shall we come to an end with this conversation? Sure, if you want to end on that note. Like, like, how long have we talked? Like an hour plus or? 72, 72 minutes. Bloody hell, dude. Fucking hell. We can just talk forever. It's rubbish. I haven't even started. That's the thing. Like, like I have asked maybe three questions and there is like uh, 30 more. Okay, well then pick one. Uh, is, are they numbered? Of course. Uh, of course. They are, they're, of course. they're numbered in like an alphabetical order. All right. So um, I'm going to say hit me with 23. You're always like that. Why is Sideshow over? <laughs> <laughs> I want more Sideshow. Uh, Sideshow. <clears throat> Legal reasons. Again. Yeah. I mean, it's all like, oh, dude, I mean. I love making dub and I love dub. Dub, dub is a, reggae is a church. It's a holy, mu, mu, it's holy music. It's like sacred moment. It's like you can't fake it. You can't, you can't exploit it. Mm. It's like, uh, it's like, it's just an incredible moment of, 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 it's like an epiphany. Bob Marley should be on the money in Jamaica. He really, <laughs> he really should. I mean, I don't know 
who that guy is, it should be Bob Marley. There's no doubt about it. Mm. Reggae is a really sacred form of music and it led to dance music and it led to some amazing culture shifts. Um, and it's from a little island. I mean, that, that's amazing. And dub is amazing because I'm into electronic music and producing. And everything I learned about production in the 90s, I learned from listening to King Tubby records because you could listen to a King Tubby dub record and you'd hear him muting and unmuting channels. Mm. It was amazing. You'd be like, all oh, right, so the, the backing vocals are on a different track to the lead vocal. I didn't know that. Or like, <laughs> oh, the horns are on a different channel to the snares and stuff because he's just put a delay on that and it's not on that. And I learned everything from these dub records. So my sideshow project was like, okay, well, I really love dub and I really want to make it. And I've got a great band who also seem to be into it. So let's make some sideshow records. Um, and then I, I signed a deal for it and, 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 and then they wouldn't let me out. They wouldn't let me mm. buy out of the deal. They wouldn't let me out of the deal. They won't let me have any of their music back. So that's that sideshow. Then, you know, hit the, hit the dirt as, as part of some, you know, legal fucking bullshit. But, um, <laughs> You know, I, I have tried when I was in Jamaica a few years yeah. ago, I did think, hey, I'm in Jamaica. I'm going to do another sideshow record. And it didn't it didn't feel the same. The, the thrill was gone. I, sometimes it's just nicer to just like something as opposed to try and do something. So I really like my my epic dub and reggae collection. I really, really love it. I don't feel like I need to add to it with my interpretation. of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm perfectly happy with it as it is. How, how come you are so modest all of a sudden? Is that modesty? A little bit. That's just this moment of really being clear about things. Well, the dub, the reggae, and the reggae is a is a very. If you like reggae, you, you and you're not, um, you know, a Jamaican, say, like myself, then um, you you like it for all of these right reasons, but without the same context. It's like the. 13-year-old white kid in me who got into Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, mm. I obviously didn't have the same context when I listened to the message as a kid growing up in Queens in 1983. I was living by the seaside in the <laughs> outskirts of Bristol. And, um, you know, my parents did not understand my musical choices at this point, and nor did I. I don't know why I like Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Um, But when they came on top of the pops, I thought they were the best thing ever. <laughs> and uh, my mum and dad were very much like, what, what, why do you like this music? It, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's dark, shouty, you know, political, inner city stuff. And, I'm, and you live by the seaside and everything's great. And I'm like, I don't know, but it's great because you don't like it. So I like <laughs> it even more now. I learned a lot from Public Enemy, you know. In the sure. early day, I learned all all this cultural referencing that I had no idea, like stuff you, I didn't even know you were allowed to think. Like Elvis is simple and plain. Mm. I think, God, you you allowed to say that? Oh yeah, maybe he is. I don't believe that, but you know, <laughs> um, yeah, D dub is a beautiful thing. And and I when I got into it, um, you can't even and you can't even study it. You can't even analyze it. It's just a feeling. It's well, that's beautiful. the thing. Like like dub always was always will be something really sacred yeah and the same what you said uh, before about techno like that when you hear it and on paper it seems to be like so easy to make no doubt no way man i mean the same rules apply to dub as in if you think too hard you've already blown it yeah you, you, it's not about thinking it's about feeling that sounds so cliche but it's so <coughs> true same with acid house 
there is there's four components to acid house there's the there's the beats there's the acid line and maybe you're allowed one or two other things that's it mm. one of them could be a mm. and one of them could be a and that's it the <laughs> <clears throat> same with reggae and dub it's a it's a it's a minimal combination of things if you if you think too hard you're going to ruin it you're going to you're going to you know it, it's you can't intellectualize something like that it's just faith that's what it is and the best things happen from that true that you know have have a little faith and have a little faith in yourself you know it's important to Could believe work. it's important to believe in yourself otherwise you end up just doing stuff that you think you should do but you should be doing stuff that you feel that you know you should do you should have told me that like 20 years ago yeah, i wish i told myself that <laughs> <laughs> so there uh, you go mr greenall a yeah, pleasure well, it was man what a pleasure yeah. uh, thanks a lot for uh, enlightening us all oh, well, with, with your with your wisdom i'm glad you think you were enlightened and Either. then uh till then till then <laughs> bye, bye. <laughs>